Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 18 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. This is the second part of our Pea Super Festive Special. As we move into 2020, it's my interview with Dr. Dana Lee Bagley. Dana is a clinical psychologist, author and researcher, and you can hear more about her various roles in just a minute. But I just wanted to read you a summary of her book, which is called Healthy Habits Suck. How to Get Off the Couch and Live a Healthy Life, Even If You Don't Want To. And the introduction goes, Salad instead of steak? Working out? Skipping that second beer or glass of wine? Healthy habits are the worst. If you're someone who gets up every morning and can't wait for your run, considers eating sweet potatoes a splurge, and sets aside 30 minutes before work to meditate, this book is not for you. If you're someone who thinks about getting up to go for a run but goes back to sleep, regrets last night's dinner of fast food, and can barely get to work on time, let alone meditate, then this book will help you find the motivation you've been looking for to live your healthiest life, even when you don't want to. This is a conversation so rich in content and practical advice that I didn't feel a need to ask for a takeaway. The whole episode is one big banquet. We also spoke about Dana's approach to working with organisations. Here's a taster. And so we do all kinds of interventions. And part of our, you know, message is that you don't just want to create more resilient employees, right? Your employees should be your last line of defense, not your first. And so you really have to take a holistic approach in terms of is, does the organization have good policies around supporting and enforcing a healthy workplace? Do your leaders have good training about how to be um, leaders? Are your teams working effectively? And then finally, do your employees have you know, the coping strategies to manage. So to us, it's kind of inappropriate to train um, employees to be more resilient and then send them back to a toxic workplace, right? That's actually kind of unfair in suggesting that the environment doesn't matter, right? And that somehow um, employees can overcome their environments. So we work also with companies to make sure that they're creating environments that are supportive for health also. Listen on as we hear about the time when Dana discovered ACT and how she applied it in her own life. Dana also has some great advice for those of us considering behaviour change in this new year. Spoiler alert, a lot of those goals we set are actually outcomes. She also busts the myth of the time it takes to form a new habit and explains the difference between our cave-dweller mind and our frontal lobe. This is the reason our healthy habits can fall away at holiday time, because we're using up our frontal lobe too much and our cave-dweller mind can just take over when we're surrounded by family-sized Quality Street tins and crisps. Like I say, it's absolutely packed with goodies. People Soup is a community of people who are interested in behavioural science at work and how we can make it accessible, fun and useful for ourselves and each other. At work, behavioural science has the capacity to enhance our well-being, help us be the person we want to be more often, and provide us with perspectives to enable cooperation, collaboration and innovation. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, a first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. That was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first-rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. So welcome to People Soup. In news, as we enter a new decade, I'd like to thank all you pea soupers out there for listening, liking, interacting, sharing, reviewing and giving me feedback. It makes it all worthwhile. 
Particular thanks and love go to our guests who've given up their time and energy to share behavioural science with a wider audience. If you do enjoy the podcast, it would be a right festive treat for me if you would subscribe, rate and review it, whatever platform you're on. It helps us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to my conversation with the inspirational Dana Lee Bagley. Hey Supers, I am here in another virtual meeting room and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Dana Lee Bagley to the show. Dana, hi, hi. hi. Thanks so much for coming on and good morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure. Now, I'm going to go straight in with our research department to present a few outputs from their work. It says here, Dr. Dana Lee Bagley, registered psychologist, works at the Behaviour Change Research Institute. Yep. Also, I think that's part of the Nova Scotia Health Authority. Yep, that's right. Assistant professor at the Department of Family Medicine at Dalhousie University. Yep. I want to say Dalhousie. We but... pronounce it Dalhousie, yeah. Oh, because Dalhousie sounds kind of really <laughs> Scottish. Um, you also teach at the Department of Industrial and Organizational Psychology at St. Mary's University. Yeah. And you're part of Obesity Canada. I saw yeah. a great post from you around Obesity Canada, you and your superstar team. And there was a little quote there I liked, obesity is a brain disorder, not a failure of willpower. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. I've got to mention some honors and awards. Women of Excellence Award, Category of Health, Sport and Wellness, 2017. Yep. You are the president of the Atlantic Canada chapter of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Yep. So Which this is... year I'm the past president. So I was the president for two years. And so this year I'm the past president. Ah, I was looking yeah. at an old CV. Yeah. Yeah. Just to say where we met, we met first of all in Montreal at the ACBS conference and then yeah. again this year at Dublin. Yes, we did. And this title of this book, Dana, I absolutely love it. I'm going to tell the P-Supers, Healthy Habits Suck, How to Be Healthy When You Really Want to Lie on the Couch and Eat Ice Cream. Yes. What a title. Did you have to fight to get that as a title or? Uh, no, they, uh, they um, I think, enjoyed it. So they changed it slightly. And so now it says um, how to get off the couch and live a healthy life, even if you don't want to. Oh, yeah. oh but it's. That was the only editorial change, but they were down with the healthy habit suck. <laughs> Excellent. Prolific researcher. Prolific, guys. Yeah. I'll put a link to Dana's website so you can check out her research on the show notes. The way I experience you, Dana, is energetic, fun, dedicated. I see you as a leader and an influencer in your field. And oh, there's, that's lovely. And <laughs> that's there's great. One... I enjoy that. <laughs> good, good. I, I mean it most sincerely. And something I picked up on, you'll probably need to explain to me, a hockey mum. Oh, Yes. <laughs> That would be one of those uh, living your values, even when you don't want to. So my son is very much into hockey. I have never played hockey, was never part of hockey. Somebody once said to me, hockey is not a sport. It's a lifestyle, which it most certainly has taken over our lives. He's in a lot of hockey. And so I spend a lot of time freezing in a rink uh, in support of my values, even though hockey doesn't mean that much to me. Ah. <laughs> uh. Check that out, Pastupers, for values-led action. Yeah, although I tell my son all the time that, you know, he doesn't have to feel like um, my love is contingent on how he does in hockey because I really don't know what's going on. 
And I think I saw you branching out as well into being a basketball mom. Yes, recently he took up basketball. So he was doing soccer and hockey before, and now he's doing basketball and hockey. I understand basketball even less than hockey. <laughs> well, well, there's either a learning opportunity for you or maybe, maybe take some knitting. I don't know. Yeah, I would prefer alcohol, but I can't always do <laughs> that. So I do my best. Oh, I like your style. Thank you. You know that I like to ask my lovely guests, if you could have a song that would announce your arrival in a room or getting home or in your office, is there a song you would choose for the next, next few weeks just to announce your arrival? Yeah, so I picked the Wonder Woman theme song, which is actually the uh, ringtone on my phone also. I love this. You're absolutely owning it. And, and it brings back very fond memories for me of watching the, se the original series with um, Linda Carter and, and the theme tune. I'm going to have a little go at singing it, see what you think. See if this matches your ringtone or not. It kind of goes for me. It goes, da 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 Wonder Woman. All the world is waiting for you And the powers you possess In your satin tights Fighting for your rights And the old red, white and blue Something about like that. Yeah. But there's a couplet in there that I absolutely love. <laughs> in your satin tights, fighting for your rights. Yeah. I think that is power. Yep. Love it. So thank you for that. And thank you again to Linda Carter. So it's a thing for me about trying to be big. That's one of like my newer values of not playing small and, you know, trying to be big. And because I think that serves the world more than me playing small to make other people feel more comfortable around me. Whoa. Wow. That's really touched me. What you've just said. Got yeah. goosebumps. <laughs> Thank you. So, so let's, let's crack on. I'm really interested, Dana, in how you first discovered ACT. When did you, can you remember when you first came across it? Yep. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I've been um, seeing patients like for my whole career. So my majority of my work is direct patient care. So I have academic appointments, but the research is uh, not the main thing I get paid for. So primarily it's um, direct patient care. And so I remember there was a workshop on ACT that was coming to Halifax where I live and I couldn't go to the workshop. And so I got the book that was, you know, by the person who was giving the workshop um, and I started reading that book. And then the one that really influenced me was the one by Kirk Strassel and Patty Robinson on the depression, the mindfulness for depression uh, workbook, which is an act workbook for depression. And I read that one. And the first way that I used it was really with myself, as they say, right? The first person you should do act with is yourself. And I started exploring my own values and understanding who I was trying to be in the world and what was important to me. And it actually helped me get out of a really terrible marriage. And it's only because of ACT that I was able to get out of that marriage because I spent a lot of time doing like the pros and cons list of, mm. you know, whether I could change things or whether it would improve. And instead I focused on my values and who I wanted to be. And I decided, you know, if I could be that person with him, then I would stay in the marriage. But if I couldn't be the person I needed to be with him, then I was going to leave the marriage. And it made it easier to actually leave the marriage because I was moving towards something that I was really certain about and certain about 
you know, who I needed to be in life and what I was meant to contribute to the world. And that made it easier to go through what is, you know, often a really difficult thing of getting divorced. Wow. Thank you for being so open with us on that and really profound story of, of you discovering X then applying it in your life in, in perhaps the biggest way you can. Yeah. And I remember the first time I effectively did diffusion with myself because I was having all, you know, I spent so much time problem solving my relationship and trying to fix it and trying to make things different. And I remember this moment where I was like, this is just a thought. I don't actually have to do this. I don't actually have to follow what this thought is telling me. I can just let it go. And it was the most powerful moment and freeing moment that I didn't have to get sucked up into the rumination about trying to fix my relationship. And now in your, in your career, what's evolved since then? What's, what are you doing? Yeah, I've done a lot, you know, with my career and, and my personal life around trying to pursue my values. So we actually, you know, in our research lab, we have values for our research lab. We've gone over, you know, we did a team intervention based on the matrix and we talked about we have you know, values for our lab. We have values for our household about what we're trying to create in our household. I spent recently a lot of time on my parenting values. So I really use ACT as a way of guiding my life. So one of the things in my work has really been that I, you know, my goal is to, and it's similar to ACBS, right, about trying to reduce human suffering um, and increase joy. And the way that I do that is to try to help people be healthier. And so that's partly, you know, why I do the book. I do a lot of like training with healthcare providers as well as direct patient care. And that's because I'd like to have a bigger reach and a bigger impact. And so being able to share that information more broadly with um, more people. And that's why do, writing things like writing the book um, was a way of doing that um, and having an impact on that. So I think the part that I have skill in is being able to take research information and make it something that's digestible and usable um, and applicable in a way that you can actually use it in your day-to-day -day life. And so that's what I try to spend my time doing is translating research knowledge um, into things that people can do in their day-to-day -day lives to be healthier and hopefully reduce suffering and increase joy. Wonderful. And, and it really shows in what you do, the products of you applying those values and using them as your behavioral guide. I, I take my hat off to you for the, your skill in making it accessible and useful and fun to people and practical and saying, this is science, but I'm not just going to give you a slightly dull old research paper that may not make much sense, but let's make it accessible. That's so profound. And, and the way you do it is, I think there's a lesson for us all in this community and, and wider scientific communities to how we disseminate and, and spread the word about, about research. And even, so I remember giving, um, I was at a conference and I was on a panel with two other academics. And after the talk, somebody from the audience came up to me and she said, you can tell that you work in the real world. And that was like the best compliment to me because I think it's helpful. The, I mean, the book is written that way on purpose, healthy habits suck. So I remember talking to some colleagues and they're like, well, maybe we should say it this way, or maybe we should, you know, you know, maybe they're not that bad. And I was like, no, healthy habits suck. That's what we're saying. <laughs> and so, you know, I, and I think people respond to that because it resonates with people and I think it's honest. And sometimes, you know, it's things that aren't that pleasant. Like in the book we talk about, I talk about the fact that there's, it's a myth that it takes 21 days to build a habit. 
So there's mm. zero scientific evidence that it takes 21 days. Um, and it's probably more like two to five years to build a habit because you actually need to go through like an entire calendar year to figure out if you can keep the habit going, you know, during holiday break or during summer barbecue season. Mm. Um, and so it's only in the second year that you can get a, a second chance at managing to continue with that healthy habit um, at all periods during the year. And so some people are like, oh, that's so depressing that it takes you know, two to five years to build a habit instead of 21 days. But I think it's um, important because people get to day 22 and it's still hard work and they think, oh, well, there must be something wrong with me because it's only supposed to take 21 days. This is supposed to be easy now. And then they give up and they don't keep going. And so that's the reason why, you know, I prefer to give the real information so people can make better decisions in their lives. Climate. let's bust that myth right now then and let's spread that word because that's such a common thing people in organizations say it to me people i know who are working on their on their weight people in all sorts of things about developing new skills they say and i think there's a really popular ted talk about it too so busted myth number one tell tell me more about the book please Tell me, tell me, who, who is it aimed at? Who would, who would buy this book? Yeah, so it's um, aimed at the public and really anybody who's trying to be healthier. So in my day-to-day -day work, I work with a lot of people who have chronic conditions. So um, things like diabetes, liver disease, kidney disease, obesity, cardiovascular disease. So I spent a lot of time with people who sort of are required to try to be healthier and have a long list of things that they're supposed to do to try and be healthier especially to manage chronic disease. And so that's where the experience comes from. And so it's really mixing the science that we know about what works about behavior change with the you know, experience of working with you know, hundreds of people trying to help them be healthier. And I also give a lot of examples from my own life of trying to manage my own health behaviors. And so it talks about both why it's difficult to um, engage in healthy habits and to stick with it and then some skills around how to actually do that. And so we review things like how to explore your values around health behavior. So not trying to make health a more important value, but trying to identify something that's already personally meaningful to you and link the health behavior to that. So for example, not going to the gym to manage your weight or to be healthier, but going to the gym so that you can be a more engaged parent, for example. And seeing that that's not actually time away from my kid, that's actually another way that I express my value of trying to be an engaged parent. And so, you know, especially for working moms, you don't have to convince them that they should take more time for themselves or, you know, because um, that's a hard sell for working mm. moms and, you know, for a lot of parents. So instead, we're trying to link it to something they already see about themselves. They already see themselves as dedicated parents and helping them see that these health behaviors are actually just another way to express that value, um, that it's not them necessarily being selfish or me time, but that's another way that they can express their values. And to help them see that, you know, as parents, we do all kinds of difficult things in the service of being the parents we want to be. So going to the gym can be just one more crappy thing you do in the service of being the parent you want to be. And then we talk about all the things that get in the way. So all the thoughts and feelings and sensations that get in the way and how to handle those differently so that you're more likely to stick with your healthy habit. Mm. In our work using ACT in the workplace, we work a lot with the NHS and working with clinicians and those in the caring professions. And we talk about self-care quite a lot. And it's a tough sell. But hearing you talk about linking that to the value of being uh, a parent is another really 
quite sophisticated, like, but intuitively attractive way in. I love that. Yeah, so we do workshops with um, healthcare providers also. So we do a lot of training for healthcare providers in behavior change skills. So basically chronic disease management and how they can interact with patients in a way to better support chronic disease self-management. And in a healthcare system, you know, it's really designed for acute illness. It's not well designed for chronic disease. But most of the illnesses that we deal with nowadays are chronic disease, and healthcare providers really don't have any skills in how to manage chronic disease. Their training is really well designed for acute illness. And so we do training um, using empirically supported principles of behavior change within their scope of practice. So we're not making them therapists or counselors. We're just helping them interact with their patients in a way that is more conducive to behavior change. And then we also do work on professional resiliency and burnout prevention. And so one of the things that we try to help them see is that self-care isn't time to take care of themselves. That's another way that they show up as the healthcare provider that they want to be, that they're going to the gym, they're taking a lunch break, not to take care of themselves, but so that they can show up as the healthcare provider that they want to be, so they can be better at being, you know, whether it's a compassionate healthcare provider or caring healthcare provider or engaged or dedicated that taking care of themselves is a means to do that rather than trying to convince them because that's part of the mentality of a healthcare provider is that it's patients first right mm. patients first the patient comes first and that's why I will go to work sick because the patient comes first and so helping them link the health behaviors to that already very ingrained belief about mm. who they are that they put patients first but now helping them see that going to the gym we're taking a lunch break is putting the patient first. And yeah, I absolutely agree. Some of our research where we interview participants after some act in the workplace training, they're saying, oh, it feels like I've got permission to look after myself, first of all, but then they recognize why they're doing it. They can link it to that, that same value of compassion and caring. Wonderful. What about people in the wider workplace? I've worked in workplaces for over 20 years and there's always people that set up a little group so we can do our little diet sheets or or talking about lunch and and relationships with food do you do anything that takes it out into offices and organizations one of the things that i started doing recently was working with a human resources company that does interventions for healthy workplaces and you know pretty much any kind of company and we do work like across canada and the reason I did that is because I really think that the workplace is the only place you can really do primary prevention now. So the hospital system is just way too entrenched in a reactive mode that it really only treats illnesses once they've become serious. And so the only way that you can do primary prevention is through the workplace. And so leveraging the workplace as a resource for health. And so that's why I joined that company was so that I could also do some primary prevention in addition to basically the tertiary care that I provide within the hospital system. And so we do all kinds of interventions. And part of our you know, message is that you don't just want to create more resilient employees, right? Your employees should be your last line of defense, not your first. And so you really have to take a holistic approach in terms of is, does the organization have good policies around supporting and enforcing a healthy workplace? Do your leaders have good training about how to be um, leaders? Are your teams working effectively? And then finally, do your employees have you know, the coping strategies to manage? So to us, it's kind of inappropriate to train um, employees to be more resilient and then send them back to a toxic workplace. 
right? That's actually kind of unfair in suggesting that the environment doesn't matter, right? And that somehow um, employees can overcome their environments. So we work also with companies to make sure that they're creating environments that are supportive for health also. And typically almost any intervention that we do around that, I often say, you know, is it news to you that fruits and vegetables are good for you? Like, did anyone not know that sleep is healthy? I mean, everybody knows these things and most of us know the things we should be doing to be healthy. We're just not actually doing them. And so our interventions are largely focused on the how rather than the what. And that's where we make use of ACT you know, interventions to help with the how of how to actually implement healthy habits. And again, that's about like reviewing people's values around why they're doing it and having skills like mindfulness, present moment awareness, diffusion, emotional acceptance skills, self-compassion, so that they can actually continue with those healthy habits because most of the time they suck. Wow. My mind is officially blown by you talking about the organization as the primary prevention arena. I'd never looked at it with that perspective before, but it's just, it's been there staring me in the face. And quite often I see organizations where they'll think, right, we need to be nicer to our people or, or watch what they eat. So let's, let's provide free fruit and snacks that are healthy. And that will nail everything. That will transform the culture, build effective teams and, and deliver us amazing engagement. Guess what? It doesn't. You know that. In fact, the best one I ever had was I was working with um, in part of government where they have quite a lot of scientists. And there was a big argument about whether they wanted organic fruit or genetically modified fruit. And that was the argument. And chances are that you put out like, you know, healthy snacks and people go around the corner and buy donuts and bring those in. <laughs> exactly. And so, one of the things that we talk about, you know, um, for example, with leaders is about, are you modeling the behavior? So a lot of leaders will say, you know, if somebody comes in my office and they're super stressed out and they're overworked, then like, absolutely. I'm like, how can we help you? How can we reduce your workload? Do you need some time off? Right. They're absolutely responding that way. And, and I will ask the leader, did you take a lunch break today? Because if you're not modeling the behavior, then what you're really saying is it's okay for you as the employee to take care of yourself. But if you really want to get to the top like me, then you have to sacrifice your health. And so the most powerful message you can send to your employees around taking care of themselves is to demonstrate it, is to say, I can't meet with you right now because I'm taking a lunch break. And you should too, and then we'll find a time to meet. Because otherwise, it's a mixed message. Sometimes in organizations, I feel like I'm the lone voice saying this. I talk about, because leaders are under scrutiny. Their people are looking for behavioral cues on how they should behave in the workplace. And as you've just described, if they don't take a lunch break or if they're sending emails at midnight, it becomes sort of a badge of honor. Like, yeah, yeah. you yeah, send me an email. I am. Yeah. You send me an email at midnight. I ping it back at five past midnight. Hey, we're both awake. Yeah. And that's, again, about helping them see, like, what kind of leader do you want to be? Like, how do you want to show up? What kind of, you know, at your retirement party, how do you want people to describe you as a leader? And how do you have to show up on a day-to-day -day basis for them to describe you that way? And that modeling it is the most powerful message that you can send to your employees. Mm, absolutely. And that's, again, just basically being consistent with your values, right? The committed action around your values and doing that even when it's hard. And I love that. 
the example you gave is perfect saying i can't meet you right now because i'm going to take my lunch break such a such a simple thing to do but so powerful so we often will talk with you know leaders or employees about you know if you want to be a high performing person if you want to like excel at your career then you absolutely have to be taking care of yourself so that you can show up as the best you know version of you so you know not eating fruits and vegetables to manage your weight but because it makes you think more clearly because it gives you better stamina because you can last longer so i often tell like both my patients and the people that i work with that i spend like a minimum of 2 hours a day taking care of myself so i go to the gym for an hour and i'll spend like an hour preparing food for like the entire rest of the day and then i will you know i'll go from like 6am to like 9pm at night and people are like how did you do that i'm like because i spent 2 hours investing in myself today and that's actually a marker for me about whether i'm too busy so if i don't have those 2 hours to spend every day then i've taken on too much and i have to find something to let go of uh because i can't i actually can't be that productive if i'm not investing with in myself and i don't have a chronic condition knock on wood so um for people who actually do like i have students and you know staff who have you know one of them has type 1 diabetes she probably has to spend like 4 or 5 hours a day taking care of herself and so you know it's a big commitment when you have a chronic disease and we talk a lot you know with her about how she has to invest that time so she can show up as the employee she wants to be even though it feels you know often for her that she's not getting to do work because she's taking care of herself but that's actually the only way she can sustainably do it over time i'm so grateful for what you've just said because we can look at you as an amazing prolific researcher and author someone with a cv and that's i couldn't make head nor tail of it because there's so many different roles you have and you could think oh probably dane is one of these people who gets up at 4:30 spends 10 minutes in an oxygen tent and then starts answering emails at 4:25 and you know these ridiculous toxic things that some leaders put out saying this is my daily routine if you adopt this you'll be a gazillionaire like me but to hear you model that for us love yeah. it And I've been actually trying to work on like getting better sleep and it turns out that I need 3 hours a day if I want to get better sleep because I can't actually wake up really early to go to the gym if I want to get, you know, the 7 to 9 hours of sleep and so I actually need a third hour in order to get good sleep and that's what I've been working on is figuring out how to make space for the third hour. Wow. Using yourself as your live research And I wow. actually, you know, took a part-time position at the hospital partly in, in response to all of this uh because I was too busy. I wasn't having time to take care of myself. I wanted to have more flexibility, also flexibility for my kids so that I could, you know, be around to do stuff with him. So there was a week where I was away traveling doing work and when I was away doing the other kind of work, I actually had to take vacation time from the hospital. so i came back and i'd taken 5 days vacation and my kid had a pd day like a day off from school but i couldn't take the day off because i'd already taken 5 vacation days off but it would have been perfect cuz i'd been away and i could have like spent time with him and so instead he spent the day with his stepmom who's lovely and i'm grateful for her that she could take time to spend with him but i was like no i'm not letting this happen again and i started looking for a part-time job at the hospital so that i could have more flexibility isn't it moments like that so you think oh 
Right. And for me, what I realized was that because the hospital job is like a full-time pensionable position, and I didn't realize that by holding on to the hospital job, I was actually putting money first because I don't, I mean, I don't get paid the most per hour at the hospital, but because I didn't want to let go of the pension, I was actually putting money first. And I was like, that's not me. That's not my values. Like I, that's really important to me to convey to my kid that like people are more important than money. And it, is like a lot of discomfort to let go of a full-time pensionable job, right? To go into a job that is much more like contract work and inconsistent. Mm. Um, but that was, you know, the move I needed to make because it was consistent with my values and it actually causes a whole bunch of discomforts um, about losing my pensionable, you know, full-time job. I'm guessing I'm going to be publishing this episode, Dana, at a, about just between that period between Christmas and New Year, when we're lying on the sofa, or when I'm lying on the sofa, maybe eating too much chocolate, and maybe, I'm not a big fan, but maybe thinking about how this New Year is going to be different. Would there be any tips you would give to people who are thinking about the New Year and maybe going for the R word, the resolutions? Yeah, so I have some great tips on how to make better New Year's resolutions. So many of us do this. Um, you know, many of us set goals, and that's a normal thing in our culture to do. But often the goals we set are outcomes, and the outcomes we don't actually have control over. So things like weight is an outcome, because we don't have one to one control over it. It's influenced by a whole bunch of things, um, only a small part of which is about, you know, how much we eat or how much we exercise huge genetic and environmental components to your weight or other things like I'm going to get a promotion or I'm, you know, all those things where it's not about your talent or how good you are as to whether you get a promotion. It's influenced by a whole bunch of other things. And so rather than setting those kind of outcomes as goals to think instead about what would you like more of or less of in your life for 2020? And then what would you need to do? How would you need to show up to have more of those things? So in 2019, I made the goal to have that it was the year of relationships. So I was going to try and work less and focus more on my relationships of all kinds, like family, friends, all kinds of different relationships. And how would I need to show up? You know, what did I need to prioritize? What did I need to do so that I could focus more on relationships? And so this is, you know, it's another way of thinking about your values and what you want, um, how you want to show up for the year and the things that you'd like to create more of or less of. So those might be things like adventure or creativity, you know, um, or less things like less drama or things like that. And then how would you have to show up to, you know, foster those environments for that to happen? Mm -hmm. um, I do also have some tips for if you are going to make some goals around healthy habits, for example. So lots of people decide they're going to get healthy and often people decide they're going to change everything about their life. They're going to, you know, eat only organic food and they're never going to have processed food and they're going to stop drinking pop and they're going to go to the gym five days a week. And if they're lucky, that will last till Friday, right <laughs> after the New Year's, most likely will fall apart on the Wednesday afternoon craving. So if you are planning on making um, changes to your healthy habits, some of the tips that we talk about is, first of all, clarify your values, right? Why are you doing this? It, um, health is not a value. It's a domain what will health help you do? How will having your health help you be the person you want to be, right? Parenting, family, those are not uh, values, they're domains. How do you want to show up as a parent? What kind of family are you trying to have? So clarify the, you know, meaningful reason for making the change. 
then also think about setting a behavioral goal instead of an outcome goal. So uh, we have a lot more control over our behavior than we do our thoughts and feelings. And so behavior is basically something that someone else can see you do, right? So going to the gym is a behavior. Someone can watch you do it. Whether you enjoyed being at the gym is not a behavior. Did you feel motivated to go to the gym? Not a behavior, right? So picking a behavioral goal, because it's much more likely to be under your direct control. Then we talk about picking um, a 90% goal, which means that you're 90% sure you can do it. And if you're not 90% sure, then make it something smaller, less intense, less frequent, until you basically feel pretty certain that you can do that. And then you work on um, achieving those 90% goals and adding to that over time. So for example, if you set the goal to go walking three times a week and you go twice, um, have you succeeded or failed? Well, technically you failed because you were going to go three times and we went twice. But if you set the goal to go once and you go twice, now you've succeeded. And basically success breeds success. When we feel like we're succeeding at something, we want to keep doing it. If you feel like you're failing at something, we naturally want to stop. And often then we don't want to try again. And that's like the bigger issue is that then we don't try again because we have so many experiences with failing with that that we don't even want to try. So setting a 90% goal and then working your way up to that, to the eventual goal, right? So if your goal is to go walking five days a week, then it might be starting one day a week and working mm. your way up eventually. Um, and then lastly, to pick a do instead goal. So especially around dietary goals, we often pick don't do goals. So I'm going to not drink pop. I'm going to stop eating sugar. I'm going to not eat chocolate. I'm going to not eat chips in front of the TV. And the problem with that is that it creates the thought suppression effect, which is that when we try to not think about something, we think about it more. And I always do the little exercise of like, don't think about pink elephants, right? Which then leads people to think about pink elephants, even though they were probably not thinking a lot about pink elephants until I told them not to. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. So when we set a don't do goal, we're, we're creating pink elephants. So think about the do instead goal. What are you going to do instead of drinking pop? What are you going to do instead of eating chips late at night? And think about adding healthy things in instead of taking unhealthy things out. Um, and that also will make us feel less deprived because we're thinking about the things we're adding instead of the things that we're not allowed to have. Wonderful. I love the way you describe that and also bring it to life with those examples because it's so clear and, and hopefully useful for, for me and hopefully for the people listening as well. Thank you. There's a question popping up for me, Diana. I'm kind of spellbound. I'm kind of forgetting I'm doing an interview and thinking, oh gosh, it's, it's, I need to talk now. <laughs> but um, question showing up for me about sometimes when I go to organizations and they say, yeah, we like what you're talking about around behavior change and, and building skills, psychological skills for life and for work. But can you do it in, in one session? And I always push back and say, no, I would like to do it in three would be my ideal can how can i convince you of the benefit of that because you get the chance for behavioral repetition to feed back to talk about stuff do you have any tips on how we can help organizations appreciate that yeah so the way i typically talk about this and it's also a way i talk about it in therapy also is that there's an adequate dose of the intervention and if you haven't had like a true um therapeutic dose of the intervention, then it's not going to work. And the example of this is like taking an antibiotic. So if you take an antibiotic for two days instead of 10 days, and then your illness comes back, it's because you didn't take the full dosage of the intervention. Or if you take, you know, take the antibiotic once a week when you're supposed to take it every day. 
And so, you know, if a company is like, well, we can only do like this one session, I'll be like, that's fine. I totally understand. Just so you know, this is not a true dose of the intervention. Mm. So we actually don't expect any change from this. You know, you're taking two days of an antibiotic instead of 10. And so people are likely to relapse. You know, you're not going to see sustained change. So I totally get that. That makes sense. I can understand that. Just so you know, it's not a real dose of the intervention. We don't expect change with this amount of treatment. Lovely. Thank you so much. I love that. I knew you'd have a, uh, something neat for me, and that's it, the, the, the relating it to antibiotics. Because I, I recently had uh, someone very senior in an organization come to me and say, oh, we've got our leaders coming together. I wonder if you could come and do a half-hour session on their resilience at work, and maybe if you can give them all the skills they need, and then just to top it all, and we haven't got anything to pay you. And that was a minor thing because I would have said no anyway. I said, if that's the signal you're giving, if that's the role modeling, that what, how you invest in your leaders is half an hour over a lunchtime to talk about your personal skills and, and resilience, then I don't want any part of it. And we will talk about, you know, that, that this is an awareness session. Like, the, you know, an hour-long talk is an awareness session. This is not actually meant to change behavior. There's no expectation this would change behavior. It's just awareness. And, you know, often when leaders are struggling with, you know, how the audience is taking it, like when they're trying to do work around like culture change and they're like, oh, I don't know if the audience like, you know, is, is taking that in. And part of that is, yes, and you're showing up as the leader you want to be, right? So when you're getting your employees to come to these um, sessions, whether they accept the information, whether that changes them or not, isn't up to you. That's an outcome you don't have control over. But if you're, you know, demonstrating to your employees that this is important, that you're investing in this, that this is something that matters to you, then you're showing up as the leader that you want to be and you're communicating, you know, what's important to you from the leadership perspective. And that's the part that you control at this point. Oh, it's so great to hear you saying that this and it's echoing conversations I have with leaders, but sometimes it feels like I'm not quite getting through. So I think that's just persistence on my part and also realizing that I can role model as well in organizations, just as you're doing here in this conversation. Yeah, so one of the skills that we teach healthcare providers is about doing readiness assessments. And that comes from like, you know, the motivational interviewing literature. And we talk about doing a traffic light assessment. Um, and so basically, you know, green light, you're ready, yellow light, you're ambivalent, and red light, you're not ready. To try to offer, you know, like non-judgmental language and understanding that people change their readiness, right? So this is built off the Prochaska model of change. But I find that model kind of suggests like there's this linear process of change and everyone just moves through the stages. And usually I can't remember what the stages are. And so red light, green light, yellow light totally um, is a language that everyone can understand. And that just like in real life, you know, you need all of those signals and they're all normal states to be in. And so one mm -hmm. of the things that we've done is that um, in our training program, initially when we started, it was people who were really interested in the training who would come to us to ask for training. And they're basically green light, right? They're green light to get um, training in behavior change skills and chronic disease management. And then we were asked to go to units and train everybody in the unit. And once you do that, you quickly realize that there are people, there are staff, right, who are green light and yellow light and red light for learning and for using behavior change skills in their day-to-day -day practice. So we actually started doing a readiness assessment with the staff around how ready they were to be at the training and how ready they were to actually use behavior change skills. And 
we actually developed an intervention for yellow light providers. So we developed an intervention for people who are not, um, who are ambivalent about change. So they see some advantage to it. You know, the yellow light shows up as the classic yes, but. Yes, this seems like a good idea, but I don't know if I have time for that. And so we used an ACT intervention from the workplace. It was a, you know, um, Bond and Waxman, that model to help the healthcare providers understand what are their values around using behavior change skills? Why do they want to be better at chronic disease management? Um, and then to give them some skills to sort of tolerate the distress of change, right? So asking um, in chronic disease management, you need the healthcare provider to show up as a collaborator rather than an expert. So rather than doing teach and tell, you're trying to collaborate with the patient. That's the opposite of how healthcare providers are trained. Mm. And showing up as an expert is actually a bit of a coping strategy for healthcare providers who are working with people who are sick and dying and suffering and in pain. And that's, you know, how they show up to cope with that is I'm an expert. I know what I'm doing. And if you just do what I tell you to, everything will be fine. Uh, so asking them to switch from being an expert to being a collaborator is not a minor ask, right? And it's the opposite of how they've been trained. And so our, we have a um, professional readiness program, which is an act intervention to help them get more ready for change. And that's based on, you know, the literature that showed that these act interventions um, help people, for example, learn a new computer program faster or l learn a new intervention faster and to use it more consistently. So to help them actually get ready for change. And this came about because we did this intervention, we were asked to do this professional resiliency intervention with a team and the manager said, I'm gonna make it mandatory. And we were like, you can't make professional resiliency mandatory. Like that's a bad idea. And she's like, nope, because the people who really need it won't show up. And so, you know, she dedicated money from her budget for people to show up to get this training. And so we did a readiness assessment with them, which was basically, you know, um, if they were green light, they would have shown up no matter what, you know, if they were not ready, then like yellow or red, then they are only showing up because they're mandated to be there. And um, we did pre and post analysis. And what we found was that the manager was right, that the not ready group had more sick days, they had lower performance scores than the ready group. And it was the not ready group that actually changed over time. And so they got closer to the ready group. And that was across like a couple of different measures. Mm. And so, you know, she was right that the people who needed it most wouldn't have shown up and they were the ones that changed the most. Now, I wouldn't say that that's true of any stress management, professional resiliency intervention that you would offer in the workplace. I think it was very specific to it being an ACT intervention because again, we talked a lot about what are your values around taking care of yourself or values around being a healthcare provider and skills to manage sort of the, you know, the, the stress of changing um, and taking better care of yourself. And so to me, it actually was a yellow light intervention. It was appropriate for people who weren't necessarily ready for change because you can still consider your values. You can still learn skills to manage, you know, the stress of change, even if you're not ready to actually change. Um, and so that's where the professional readiness program came from. And so we developed that more fully so that we can offer that. Um, and typically now when we go train a whole unit, that's what we do is we do the readiness assessment. Most commonly, there's the largest group is yellow light, which is exactly what you'd expect. Mm. And so we incorporate the professional readiness, which is basically act skills for the healthcare providers as part of the overall training. It's great hearing you talk about this because I know you spoke about it on our discussion panel a bit in Dublin. Is this approach you've developed about readiness, is that published anywhere in a protocol or in a paper? 
Um, the readiness one we're working on. So we have a paper that uh, we're trying to submit. We have trouble submitting it because they're very high in ecological validity, but low in internal validity because we accept all people showing up, mm. right? So, you know, in a, in a classic randomly controlled trial, you screen out all these people and you screen out the people who are high in depression and high in anxiety. And like, and I'm like, who are these people that you're testing? Like, I don't, that's not who shows up in our office. So it's really meaningful for us. And that's one of our values as a lab is to do ecologically valid research. So this mm. is like who actually shows up. We don't screen people out. We let everybody join. Um, and this is what it would look like if you were actually trying to implement it in a hospital setting. But we also have trouble publishing it because it's not a pristine RCT. So we do have um, a paper that has been rejected multiple times. So we're going to keep trying to get it published. Uh, we do have papers on our behavior change curriculum and what mm. that looks like. And those ones have been published. And so we're working, we have data on assessing readiness with healthcare providers, and we're working on getting that one published. Great. So we'll put links to the, the published papers on the show notes for this episode, because I could just think of the people from organizations and particularly I'm thinking about the NHS, where we've trained over 20 trusts. We've trained clinical psychs usually to deliver to staff. And I think this would just add another level of utility, sophistication, but also a convincer for the investment of this time. Yep. And our most recent intervention was actually an online version of it. So um, we were training a group of healthcare providers on the other end of the country of Canada. And so um, it was an online version. So we're testing the effectiveness of de delivering it in an online version instead of an in-person version. Wow. Again, interesting. And I can't wait to hear more about that. Now, I know I've, I've sent you the new protocol that I've been working on with Paul Flaxman and Joe Oliver. And, and the, also the hour two-day train, the training recording. I know you haven't looked at it yet. That might be a, a Christmas treat or not. It is. <laughs> yes, on my Christmas, my holiday to-do list, yep. Gosh, no pressure then. Might you be incorporating that in, in some of your interventions? What we're doing is we're using the matrix a lot more. Yeah. So, and what I actually have done is that I actually did go get training with the matrix. So I went and did um, Kevin Polk's training on the matrix. Um, especially because I like to um, use it in team building, right, around like the shared purpose for teams. So I, I went to this online training and Kevin's like, do you know anything about ACT? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a peer reviewed trainer, uh, but still I want to learn more. And that's why I'm here, right? So, um, so I did the matrix training. So that was sort of the foundational stuff that I wanted to do before I got into how you guys were applying mm. that in the workplace. So now I feel like I'm in a better place to be able to make use of that model for the workplace and I can see how it's you know very useful and we have some uh, teams lined up to actually do the team intervention using the matrix great great well we'll keep you posted and I'm sure we can have conversations with you and your team if if that would be useful so what for 2020 what's on the horizon for you Dana um, I don't know yet, actually. So I, I haven't done my own New Year's resolutions yet. I haven't thought yet about what I want more of or less of. I've been like in the process of starting that and to figure out like where I want to prioritize my time. So, but I find it really useful to actually like set aside some time to think about my values, to think about who I'm trying to be and what I'm trying to contribute as a way of guiding my decisions. And it makes it much easier to make decisions when I'm clear about my values. So hmm. like in parenting, for example, like all of my child's like household responsibilities are all linked to values. 
So like, why is he cleaning up the, you know, his dishes? Because part of our value is around being a village and supporting each other. And so that's part of how we support each other. Um, and so that makes it much easier to, you know, stand my ground or to hold the line because I'm clear on what the value is. And I, and I hope that that actually makes it clear for him too, as like, why is mom making this rule or enforcing this? Because um, the values are listed on the wall. <laughs> nice, a lovely visual cue there for him and yeah. you on the yeah. wall, keeping them prominent. Yeah. So I will say one of the things that's been really interesting for me this year that you mentioned actually earlier was about the obesity work and the brain functioning. So that's been a really useful new addition to the kinds of talks and information that I've been giving. So I was on a panel uh, that gave talks across Canada and there was um, a family physician, uh, endocrinologist who was also a pharmacist, a psychiatrist who also did neuroscience, um, and myself as a psychologist talking about the brain uh, influences over obesity and how obesity is actually a brain disorder and all the changes that happen in the brain. And so I found that really helpful, not just for obesity, but for um, all kinds of, you know, behavior change issues and thinking about, you know, what we refer to as like the caveman brain versus like your frontal lobe, which is more like the administrator or the executive brain and how the caveman brain is very well suited to caveman existence, but gives us sometimes bad advice for our modern world. And the part that we have control over um, is our behavior because that's what's controlled by the frontal lobe, right? So the caveman brain is responsible for emotions, automatic thoughts, learning, memory, appetite regulation, and it is based on survival principles. It works no matter what. So you can't turn it on. You can't turn it off. It's always giving you advice and it would be great advice if you were a cave person but not often not well suited to our modern world where in the Western world we have, you know, readily, you can have a half day's worth of calories in a single Starbucks cup. Right. Um, i I often will say like, you know, those skinny girls in the magazines, they don't survive a long winter. They're not getting <laughs> through the famine. Like it's, you know, evolutionarily adaptive to put on weight. That is absolutely, you know, starving to death has been a, a problem for the human species forever and continues to be a problem. As we are speaking, there are humans on the planet starving to death. So we have system after system to make sure we don't starve to death. And so putting on weight, even though it may not be healthy in our modern environment, it is exactly what millions of years of evolution, you know, have shaped humans to do. And so understanding that the, the part we actually have control over is our um, executive functioning is our frontal lobe, and it only controls behavior. Right, and our executive lobe is basically like a, a battery or a muscle, and that we use it up, and at a certain point it's spent, and there's nothing left, right? And that's why binge eating is more likely to happen in the evenings compared to the mornings, because you've basically used up your self-control, your willpower, or your frontal lobe with all the things we have to do all day long. And once your frontal lobe is used up, not to worry, your caveman mind is still there, ready to give you some advice about how to feel better right away. Mm. It usually is some unhealthy habit, right? And especially at the Christmas season, the holiday season, we are using a lot of extra frontal lobe energy, right? Going to, um, you know, the mall to buy Christmas presents or holiday presents, you know, driving there, finding a parking spot, making decisions about gifts, about how much to spend and whether they'll like it or not, that all uses up our frontal lobe. And then you go to work or you go home and there are all these lovely treats around available, you know, at the holiday season. 
So I often say, you know, if you're a cocaine addict, you don't usually have to go to a holiday party with cocaine spread all over the tables. If you do, no judgment, maybe that's your workplace, I don't know. But many of us will have to go to holiday parties with sugary, fatty, salty foods all over the table that are not healthy for us. So now you've used up a whole bunch of your frontal lobe doing all these extra holiday things and you're faced with all of these triggers, right? And treats that your caveman brain is like, yay, this is awesome, eat some of that. And so it's really understandable that we end up, you know, eating more unhealthy foods than we meant to that we don't end up going to the gym, that some of our healthy habits fall away at the holiday time because you're just using up your frontal lobe too much. And sometimes our, our interventions for people living with obesity have nothing to do with exercise um, or eating and are about how to reduce the load on their frontal lobe. So that might be getting out of a bad marriage or leaving a toxic workplace or changing where you live so you don't have to commute for three hours a day because all of those things use up your frontal lobe energy and then there's nothing left to make good choices, right? So, so I've found that that kind of distinction of understanding those two parts of our brain and how they work um, has been really helpful. And I know myself when I over, I ate a whole gingerbread house on the weekend as we were decorating gingerbread houses. And one of the ways that I try to be compassionate with myself, which is also a really key skill in kind of getting back on the wagon, like we are all going to fall off the wagon. That's inevitable, right? The better question is how quickly can you get back on? And there's lots of science to show that if you're kind to yourself and compassionate to yourself, then you're going to get back on the wagon faster. And so one of the ways that I try to be compassionate to myself after I eat a whole gingerbread house is to say, oh, well, there's millions of years of evolution in action, right? I am not actually immune to the forces of evolution. My caveman brain gave me an awesome suggestion for caveman times, and mm. I followed it. So millions of years of evolution in action so that I can try to be kind to myself and to make better choices. Again, what you're doing, you're making it accessible to a wider audience, the science. And this is why, you know, we focus in ACT, we focus on behavior because, right, it's, it's a mm. big thing in ACT that we are not trying to change feelings, we're not trying to change thoughts because those are coming from your caveman brain that you have no control over. It functions mm. automatically, right? The part that we have control over is our frontal lobe and that only controls behavior, right? And so that's why in ACT, we're always trying to get people to focus on behavior rather than outcomes, rather than feelings, rather than thoughts, because that's the only part, you know, from a structural part of our brain that we have direct control over. Mm. Diana, one thing I, I quite often do with guests is ask them for a takeaway, but I'm not going to ask you for a takeaway because I think the whole episode is a takeaway. It's so awesome. <laughs> It's so packed with, with goodies and, and perspectives and practical stuff. We don't need a takeaway, I don't think. Awesome. Excellent. Yep. And that's, I mean, again, when, when I ended my marriage, it was because this is the person I thought I needed to be, right? This is what I thought I needed to contribute to the world and to share with the world because um, I think I can translate complex information into something that's easily digestible and usable and makes sense um, for everybody um, and that hopefully that can help improve people's lives right so I often say I don't really care if you're healthier I care if being healthier helps you be the person you want to be and helps you live the life you want to have and that's really like what's important here amen to that absolutely Dana I'm kind of a little bit lost for words, but I wanted to say thank you so much for your time to, for coming on the show. Thank you for really bringing to life your values. You've just described them there and your openness, your honesty, your clarity. 
is something that I, I am going to treasure this episode. It's really something quite profound for me. So I hope the P-Supers love it as much as I do. I can't wait to just get this out there, edit it and get it out there. So, so thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to be here. So it's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to more people. And so I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and all of those things being consistent with your values. And so it's always lovely to interact with you. P-Supers, that's it in the bag. This episode and the year. I'd like to thank Dana for her energy, openness, role modelling and pioneering work making science accessible and practical. If you like this episode or the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, rating or review are also very, very much appreciated. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk and this includes links to a few different platforms. I really love to hear from you, P-Supers, what you like, what you'd like more of, what you're not so keen on. So do get in touch. You can contact me at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, we're at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and to you for listening. Have a great week, P-Supers, and bye for now. So it's a thing for me about trying to be big. That's one of like my newer values of not playing small and, you know, trying to be big. And because I think that serves the world more than me playing small to make other people feel more comfortable around me. Whoa.